Monday, Monday afternoon, theologian. Hey, fellow theologians, as we were interrupted last week, remember when the interruption to season six became season seven, and when the interruption to the episode became the introduction? Well, Anyway, as we were interrupted last week. That's right. We have decided that after much introspection, we are going to talk about, wait for it, wait for it, interruptions again this week. Whoa. So we now interrupt episode one to bring you another episode. We're going to call this episode, episode nine. We just figured we needed a plot twist in there somewhere. Of course we did. We thought maybe we should use the dartboard of of destiny to determine what number we'll use to label our next episode. And then we decided better of it because we overused that a few seasons ago. Mm. And I know that you've had a uh, personal interruption in these last couple of weeks. Yes, I did. It's one of those little 24-hour illnesses that forced me to take a day off, which means that I had to cancel a couple of appointments. But I know that that's nothing compared to some of the other people's lives, including people I know who have had huge interruptions with their plans with months or years of therapy or hospitalizations or surgeries. That's just a real simple interruption for me. It wasn't a big deal. But you're retired now, Rick. So what do you have interruptions about? Well, I have some huge interruptions, and it's it's often several times a day when my dog comes in and puts her chin on my leg to indicate that she wants to go out to do her business. Since we have five acres that's not fenced in any way, uh, that usually means I have to get up, go downstairs, put the leash on, take her out, let her do her thing, come back in. I try not to get irritated about it, but I usually do because I might be working on something and I have to stop. It really doesn't mean anything. It's a, a momentary light interruption, but... The things that we have just talked about are nothing in comparison to the people that we're going to talk about today. That's true. And sometimes by comparison, we can see other people's interruptions and we start to think, oh, you know, yeah, mine's not so bad. (laughs) And I hope that that's going to help give us some perspective today. And this is going to point us to some really important stuff. So this week, we're going to look at interruptions in the music world. And to start with, we are going to talk about Christian recording artist Michael W. Smith. Mm -hmm. And my experience with him has only come after his interruption when he was a well-known Christian music artist. But he began Mm -hmm. studying music when he was very, very young. And he actually wrote a song when he was five. And he was singing in the Baptist church choir from probably the time that they would allow him in, which with his voice might have been at age five and a half. Yeah. His musical career started so young, and with all that church experience, he just loved to sing praise songs, and he started to feel a sense of call to use his music for God's glory. And back then, in his early years, especially in his early teens, God was his anchor, and singing about him was just about all he wanted to do. It was really central to Michael's identity, in fact. And at age 17, can you imagine? That's pretty young. At age 17, he moved to Nashville so he could be a songwriter. And then he began playing in some after-hours bars, and he started getting into drugs, and they got harder and harder drugs. And before long, he was just completely enveloped by that world, and he was in bondage to those drugs. He lost his personal compass. 
And there was a time when he just felt like there was no way of escape. So after about three years of what he describes as a personal hell, he had seriously a near-death experience. That's when he snorted something he thought was cocaine, but it wasn't. And he was in really bad shape. And through that experience, he began to feel like God was calling him back. But he knew that he needed to be rescued. And as part of this process, he was deciding that he needed to be accountable to himself and to God. And as he was crying out, he was laying on the linoleum floor of his kitchen. And he says that God met me right there. So after meeting God on the floor in his apartment, he purposely changed his sphere of influence. Those folks around him were influencing him towards the drug side of of life. And he said, I can't do that. I need to be surrounded by only great people who have a similar mindset. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing. I, I know a guy now who is a man, but when he was a young man, he had a similar experience. And he got to the point after a come to Jesus moment, so to speak, when he said, I don't have a drug or an addiction problem. I have a friend problem. And he decided I need to do something extremely different. And so he did. He moved to a different town. He started going to a Christian college. He made some Christian musician friends. They started a band. Everything changed for him because of his sphere of influence. It changed drastically. After a few months of this change of scenery for him, including change of friends, Michael received a contract to write songs. So he was doing what he loved to do. That record contract as well led to 14-hour-a-day recording sessions. But he didn't mind that because he was doing what he loved to do. So he lost track of time. And then in his own testimony, which is seen on the website, I am second, Michael edits several years into about three sentences. And he says very simply, next thing you know, I'm playing arenas. And all of a sudden he realizes I'm not dwelling in my past anymore. And that came through in his testimony. And that's something that's important for us. We don't have to dwell in our past. When we're walking with Christ, the past is behind us. It, the past is past. <laughs> so we don't have to glorify it. We don't have to wallow in it. We don't have to be reminded of what we were. We can focus on the one who's helping us maintain in the moment awareness, walking in his will today, one day at a time. No need to wallow. And for Michael, after all of this experience, he discovered that the real deal in his life is knowing himself and whose he is, who he belongs to. And that's really his only priority. His success was not selling millions of records. His hope was not in being a rock star. It was in knowing that he is an adopted son of the high king of the universe. I mean, what a way to phrase that. I love it. That puts it right in perspective. From almost dying on the linoleum floor, to knowing the high king of the universe and being known by him and being adopted by him, that's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big deal. Oh, Well, there are several other similar stories that come from many different perspectives, but especially in the rock world. For example, many of you probably know the name Alice Cooper, that 70s shock rock guy. And yet Alice Cooper says in his testimony that he came from a Christian home and had a Christian background. In fact, in one interview, he said, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. He was an evangelist for 25 years. And I used to go up and do ministry work with him with the Apache Indians in Arizona. 
His grandfather was a pastor for 75 years. And even his wife's father was a Baptist pastor. So he was a PK or a pastor's kid through and through, right down to his core. No kidding. Man, if you cut him, he probably bled the Baptist hymnal. He became so ensconced in the drug world of rockers that he was about as far deep into it as you can get. And yet he says that there was a hellfire and brimstone preacher that spoke really honestly about the eternal consequences of our choices, and particularly the choice to trust Christ as Savior. And he recognized, I need to make that choice. And as we saw in Michael W. Smith's life, he changed his sphere of influence as well. In fact, he became good friends with Glenn Campbell. Now, you've got to see those two on a golf course and go, this really is an odd couple. But it goes even beyond that as well. When he does interviews with Pastor Greg Laurie, you can see that they are pretty close. You know, So he changed dramatically the type of people that he was around, and it made a huge difference in his life. Yeah, isn't that something? And I like something that uh, Alice Cooper said. He said, it took a hellfire and brimstone preacher to wake me up to the reality of where I was headed. But then after a while of being in that church, he said, I, I needed to go deeper in my walk with Christ. And he made his way to a different congregation and felt like he was getting something that he needed to go deeper in the word because that other preacher was a really good evangelist. But sometimes we're gifted differently. And some people are really strong at evangelism. Some are better in talking about our discipleship and our ongoing walk and transformation with the Lord. And I think that's good for us to recognize because I've known several people that said, yeah, I've been actively involved in several different churches, and each one was used by God for a different part of my formation spiritually. And that's not a bad thing. Another example of somebody who was deeply into the whole drug scene because of his musical surroundings was Brian Welch, guitarist for Korn, that death metal group. And he was in some ways similar to Alice Cooper in his story. I think it started in a very different place, and so he didn't have that Christian perspective as a foundation, mm -hmm. but the difference in his life came because he saw what was happening to his daughter. Her mother had died from a drug overdose, but in the process of seeing where he was in his life, he really wanted to be a good dad, but he was so caught up in the drugs. In fact, his addiction to meth was so strong that he didn't know how to stay sober. But it was that addiction that was a catalyst to his salvation. You know, someone used a single verse, the verse Matthew eleven twenty eight, as a way to open a door to his new spiritual life. And that verse reads, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Isn't that amazing what God uses to grab our attention? I suspect that every one of these guys that we've talked about today would say that if they hadn't gotten to that dark night of the soul, if they hadn't found that rock bottom experience, they would not have been ready for what God had in store for them. And it's amazing to me what God can use, including that one single verse, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. That's amazing. He quit corn to take care of his daughter, and then something started to change in his life. In fact, his solo career became bigger than what Korn was when he was a part of it, and then it all fell apart. He was back into a world that he didn't want to be. In a quirk of circumstance, 
he was invited to sing with Korn and in fact became part of the band again. But he was realizing that the lyrics that they were uh, singing every single night really focused on personal pain. And he knew that there was a lot of it in the world and a lot of it in the audience that he was singing to. Yep. A lot of people criticized him for going back to that kind of singing. And yet he recognized that it kind of takes one to know one. And he had been very strongly personally aware of that kind of pain. And he knew that there was an answer for it. And so now he's able to preach Christ to concert goers who are in their own source of pain. So the outcome for these three guys is similar, even though they started with significant differences. And if you want to see these couple of these in their own words, you can go to the I Am Second website and look them up. But we find that even though we're not preaching against drugs at this point, drugs were a significant hindrance in their life, and it could have destroyed all three of them. And yet they all came out of it through a relationship with Christ. So it's highly likely that one or more of our fellow theologians is at a point where an addiction in their life is destroying them. And like Michael W. Smith, they need to have a, a new encounter with God, even if it's on a linoleum floor. Yeah. So perhaps we should pray for them. I think that's a good idea. I'd be happy to pray a prayer like that. And I'm going to post a link to a song by a band called We the Kingdom. It's called God So Loved, and it comes right out of John 3.16. Because they say in that song, you can bring your addiction and lay it at the foot of the cross. You can bring whoever you are and whatever you've got going on, and God's going to meet you right there. And he can completely turn your life around. So you could say a prayer kind of like this. God, I've been seeking, and sometimes I think I know what I'm seeking, but most of the time I don't. And so instead of trying to find some sort of uh, gratification some sort of fulfillment in all the places that have taken me into what I recognize now is just an addiction. I need to give that up and I'm going to lay it right at the foot of the cross. I'm coming to you as my savior and Lord. I'm asking you to take that addiction away from me. I'm asking you to help me change my environment, change my friend group, those who influence me. I'm asking you to help me connect with fellow believers who are really understanding and who know how to pray for each other and encourage one another and hold each other accountable. And I'm asking you to give me the kind of fulfillment that I know you can give that I can't find anywhere else. I need you. And so I'm giving up everything and I'm just walking with you. I surrender, recognizing that it's going to be a sweet surrender because you're the one who wants to recreate a new image in me that's going to look a whole lot more like yourself. Make me into a new creation in Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, and it's possible that some of our theologians have never really started a relationship with Christ. You know, a lot of times they'll say, oh, well, I need to clean up my life and I have to do this and I have to do that before I can, you know, come into his presence and ask him to do that. But that's that's totally backwards. He says, come to me as you are, and I will do the cleaning up after we are in a relationship. So perhaps we can guide some of our theologians to uh, that first step in a relationship mm -hmm. with Jesus. Man, that's a good idea. And I'm reminded of some churches that I've seen that it feels like people who desperately need Christ don't feel welcome there because it's almost like they think they're expected to get their life cleaned up and back on track, and then they'll be accepted. Jesus is not like that. 
It's like Rick said, he'll take you just as you are. And you just need to come to him. He'll be the one to start doing the work in your life. But you need to come to him first and just say something like this. Jesus, I need you. I'm desperate for what you can give. And I know that nobody else can handle what I've got going on. Nobody else can forgive what I need to be forgiven. Nobody else can start a brand new life like you can. You know my pain. You know it better than anybody. And you want to start cleaning me up from the inside out. And I know that I need you to do that. I can't do it in my own strength or with my own will. And so I surrender my will into your will. And I want you to do the transformation. Come into my life. Come into my heart and mind. I want to start walking with you. And I want to serve you for the rest of my life. You are my Lord. I claim you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to give me the power to start this journey with you. And I'm praying that you'll walk with me in that journey all the way to eternity, because I know that I'll have heaven in store for me as well, because that's what you promise everybody who believes in you and walks with you through their life. Thank you for that. Thank you for everything, for that weight being lifted off my shoulders. Thank you, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's an incredible thing to look back and see huge life change in people. And Rick and I have known enough people personally to know that it doesn't just happen with famous people either. It happens with ordinary folks just like you and me. And we hope that if you, being an ordinary person, have taken a step, that you'll tell somebody about it. We would love to hear about it, but we're not your most close and personal friends. We'd love to hear about it. It'll be an encouragement to us. But we really want to encourage you to reach out to somebody that you know would be excited about a change that you've made or a decision that you've made to trust Christ more fully or to trust him for the first time. So tell somebody about that. They'll be excited. And you need to surround yourself with people who are going to continue to help you on that journey that way. We're in this together. And there are folks who would be excited to hear that you've uh, taken a step of faith, whether it's a first time step or whether it's coming back to Christ you know, after some issues. And uh, there are folks who will gladly walk alongside and help you on the journey, starting where you are now and to the point where you want to be. That's so true. We've got more in store this particular season as we're looking at how theology is fleshed out in real life examples. And we understand that uh, theology is real and it changes us. And it's a good thing to study, but that's the theory. So we're talking a lot this season about the practical application being fleshed out because a lot of these testimonies reveal what God has done through people in that huge transformation that he brings about for everybody who will take those steps of faith and walk with him. So we do hope that you will join us next time for another episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon, Afternoon Theologians. 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 Theologians.